The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. And by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Try it free for 30 days by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. It's Monday, July 20th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Myanmar has no word for democracy. They barely are just acknowledging they have a word for Burma. This is from the New York Times today. For half a century, Myanmar was so cut off from the outside world that people were jailed for owning an unauthorized fax machine. Uh, Let me just step out of the article and offer this addendum. In the present, in the United States, I do believe people should be jailed for owning an authorized fax machine. That said, let's get back to the article. As the rest of the world was hurtling into the information age, one does hurtle towards that age, right? The strict censorship of publications, limited access to global media, and creaking connections to the internet stunted the evolution of the Burmese language, leaving it without many words that are elsewhere deemed essential. They have no word for democracy. They have no word for racism. Couple upsides here, though, the Times doesn't point out. I'm going to assume they have no word for microaggression. That's good. I'd like that. I'd like to live in that society. They have no word for opt out. That's also good. They have no word for trigger warning. Actually, they do, but it's about an actual trigger attached to an actual gun. So no euphemistic word for trigger warning. The same with bandwidth. It all relates to a piece of elastic over there in Burma. And in Burma, Myanmar, a win-win situation, it's not actually a good thing. It describes the ascension of the presidency from 1957 to about 1988. First, Win Maung ruled from 57 to 62. Then the coup came. Uni Win took over in a coup until 1988. So it's not much of a win-win, is it? I can't promise you more international upsides, but I can promise you more international content on the show today. First in the spiel, I will spiel about Jet.com and their sky-high valuation. Look, with Jet.com, it's, it's just harder not to make a pun, you know? Are they going to crash and burn? You just, it's not even trying. It's like more of an effort just to stay away from the Jet puns. But here's what we're going to do first. We're going to have on Ian Bremmer. He is an international thinker, a brilliant guy. He looks at the state of the world, and he says America has a few paths it can go down, and he's going to give you the path he chooses. It might not be what you think. So I guess if you don't have a win-win situation, then there's no such thing as a no-win situation, although maybe the post-dictatorship of uh, Mr. Win would fall into that. But you know what else is a no-win situation? Going to the post office. That's right. Myanmar has no words for this. Actually, they probably do. Standing in long lines, dealing with a horrible bureaucracy. So going to the post office just takes valuable time. And leasing a postage meter is expensive with multi-year commitments and hidden fees. I know a better way. It's stamps.com. You could buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. You even get special discounts that you can't find at the post office. Why? There are no discounts at the post office. Plus, stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter. If you throw a stamps.com scale at someone, it might not hurt them as much as a postage meter, but it's more powerful. You can save 80% compared to this postage meter. Right now, use the promo code THEGIST for a special offer. 
no risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. In Bremer is a little like the Sue Grafton of international politics. You know Sue Grafton. She's the mystery writer who wrote A is for alibi and B is for burglar and J is for judgment. Well, Ian Bremer has a couple of alphabet books too. The J Curve, a new way to understand why nations rise and fall. And every nation for itself, winners and losers in a G-zero world. Okay, the analogy ends there, thankfully, because his head is in his hands as I say it. But, you know, there is one thing that obtains. It's that the world is a mysterious and a dangerous place, just like a Sue Grafton novel. And the new Ian Bremmer book is called Superpower, Three Choices for America's Role in the World. Ian Bremmer is an NYU professor and president and founder of the Eurasia Group, a political risk research group where many, many rich people pay you many, many thousands of dollars to tell them where the world's going to go, right? Thousands sounds horrible, but S is for superpower. I'm really stunned you didn't go S there. S is for superpower. S is obviously for superpower. Yeah. So we got three choices, so you say. I will say the names and you tell me, give me the thumbnail sketch of what each entails, and then we'll get into it. There's independent America, moneyball America, and indispensable America. Flesh those out a little. Start from the back. Indispensable America is the one you're all used to. We know we don't want to be the world's policeman anymore, but if we don't do it, no one else is going to. And so as a consequence, we have to support our allies. We have to support international institutions like the IMF. They're going to erode and crumble, and the Chinese will build others. It'll be a problem for us. And we have to promote our values. We have to promote human rights. We ha- even though it's going to take a long time, the fact is that the reason that the world ultimately moves in a direction that's positive is because those values are out there. And when it comes to things like fighting ISIS or battling back the Russians, mm-hmm. if the Saudis and the Europeans aren't up for it, we have to lead those coalitions. That's indispensable. That is, by the way, I want to compliment you for not putting your thumb on the scale because I know where you come out and that is a fair-minded assessment of that. I also think that's the one you hear most often from politicians. It's inspirational. It's aspirational. Uh, it makes us feel good about America. It is. It's so easy to wrap yourself in the flag, right? And uh, and certainly if I were running for president and didn't care about having to implement what I was going to talk about, I would always choose that, right? Right. We are the city on the hill. We are the one indispensable nation. American exceptionalism. Rah, rah. All right. Moneyball America is, I think, the next. Yes, Moneyball America. Michael Lewis. Love it. Uh, and uh, Oakland A is not doing so well this year. But generally speaking, unsentimental foreign policy. Don't do it the way you used to do it. Do it what, do what works. And the fact is that the Chinese are not prepared to accept human rights, and they have the ability to say no. The Russians aren't going to become a free market economy tomorrow. And if the Middle East decided to become democratic, we wouldn't like the outcomes. So stop promoting those values internationally. The world has changed. And absolutely have an assertive foreign policy around the world, but make the bets in the places that are going to really give you return for your investment. So if the Europeans don't want to do NATO, I guess NATO isn't that important. The Japanese really want more America. So do the Singaporeans, the Philippines. Do a real pivot to Asia. Take your foot off of Europe and the Middle East. Get into Asia in a big way. Absolutely combat the rising Chinese because you're more concerned about them as a national security threat trying to rip off everything that moves. This seems like the foreign policy of the technocrat, the quote-unquote smart foreign policy. A lot of college professors, hey, you're one, endorse this kind of thing. I hear this sort of idea at the Council of Foreign Relations, sort of like mainstream, maybe center-left, depending on what those 
labels mean, but I hear this idea a lot, and the word smart is often attached to it. Smart is often used. I'm not sure it's center-left in the sense that foreign policy really is hard to identify with left versus right these days, yeah. uh, which is kind of useful for this book. But absolutely, I think that the, the notion that this is technocratic uh, is, uh, is right on the money. Mm-hmm. And now what's independent America? Uh, independent America is much, it's not isolationist, but it's unilateralist. It means that if the United States is going to engage in foreign policy around the world, they're going to do it to promote American interests and not those of the allies. So use your drones to take out someone that's going to potentially hurt you directly. Use your cyber surveillance to ensure that you have benefits for yourself. Use the weaponization of finance. Take down FIFA. You don't need allies for that. You can do it yourself. But stop pretending uh, that you're going to promote uh, sort of, you know, much, much broader foreign policy issues when you're not going to. The independent America tells you, says that the first two sound great, independent and, and moneyball. Indispensable and moneyball. Indispensable yeah. moneyball. But the worst thing you can do is say you're going to do one of those first two things and then not, not live up to it. So Assad must go mm-hmm. and Greece and Europe must have a deal. You know, ISIS must be destroyed and Russia must leave Ukraine. And when you're not backing it up, that's the worst possible scenario. And, and, and furthermore, American values do matter, but they ma- matter at home. And that you really want to lead by example. And that ultimately the way you get countries like China to to do what you want is by having a a series of systems that work so incredibly well that the Chinese actually want to emulate them. We've seen historically that they're pretty good at that. Now, independent America isn't Fortress America. It's not Pat Buchanan. It's not some Rand Paul or actually more like his father, Ron Paul America. It's, it's realistic. It intervenes in this case of weapon, weaponized finance and so forth, but it's much more humble, to quote a uh, past presidential candidate who didn't stick to that pledge. Well, it certainly means we're not destroying ISIS. So, I mean, it actually means that, you know, the Middle East is kind of the Middle East problem. The United States is the largest oil and gas producer in the world. So you look at that part of the world and you say, why are you doing this stuff? And uh, if the Japanese are going to cause difficulties by being more nationalist, they're going to have some consequences there. And they're not always going to be America's aircraft carrier. So it is a, it's a very different kind of policy for the United States uh, and one that I think reflects more 21st century tools of coercive diplomacy. It's the one you endorse. You reluctantly yes, endorse. Yes, but I don't yep. like it. And mm-hmm. it's interesting. There are two reasons I've chosen it. Uh, and when I wrote this book, I'll tell you honestly, I didn't have a preference. Uh, I wrote it in part because I wanted to figure out which my preferences were. I think that all three potentially work, but the two issues. The first is that I think we're living in what I call it G zero world, one where we see creative destruction geopolitically, where the Russians are becoming much more obstreperous, the Chinese are rising, and they're much more assertive. Europe is much less capable, much more inward focused. That's a world that over the next 5, 10, 20 years is going to make it harder for the United States to actually have effective foreign policy influence to bring other countries in and act with coalitions. So the first point is if you want a strategy that lasts over the long term, I think the world is moving more towards one where independent America is likely to be effective. But the second reason is that when I look at the candidates that are running for president in 2016, I am not convinced that any of them are prepared to actually walk the talk on indispensable or money ball. So this conclusion is also a challenge to them that says, look, given the best analysis that I can do, and I've been at this for a while now, I'm unconvinced that you guys are really going to make this work. Change my mind. So indispensable America is great if it's Teddy Roosevelt implementing foreign policy, but maybe it even doesn't come down to the great man or woman, if it's Hillary Clinton theory. Maybe it's just given politics now, it's way too hard to adopt that 
strategy, you're saying. It's way too hard to pick the right fights. We're so politicized. Every Republican candidate points to Obama and saying he is weak. I would never have let Putin do that incursion in the Ukraine. It's all because he's weak. And our politics pretty much demands this. And it pretty much demands on the other side saying, those guys are warmongers. And every time they want to get us into a war, they say there won't be troops on the ground, but it's always a money suck and a life suck. Well, I, you know, uh, far be it from me, an analyst, not to be skeptical about whether or not the U.S. is going to be able to get things right. But, you know, I'm a little bit more hopeful than that in the sense that, look, there are some things in the U.S. policy that are completely broken. I mean, if you wanted to have a healthcare system that's actually sustainable and paid for, you'd have to really destroy the AARP and mm-hmm. Big Pharma. And I know that's not remotely feasible. Right. You couldn't do it. On foreign policy, yeah. that's actually an area where an individual really matters. So I think that if you had a leader that really was prepared to take some bold stands on foreign policy, the United States is one of the few systems that a democratic systems that would actually allow that pretty effectively. Why do you think Hillary Clinton's not that leader? Well, she might be that leader. We'll see. I'll tell you that when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she affected a reasonably decent facsimile of Moneyball. I mean, she tried to do a reset with Russia to kind of get it off her table. It didn't work very well, but she still tried it. Libya policy, which people criticize her for, they shouldn't. They should criticize France. They should criticize the Arab League, the, the GCC. She didn't want to get the Americans stuck in a war. And so she waited till the last possible moment when all of these countries were begging the U.S. to do it, Qaddafi's with the atrocities. And finally, she says, OK, but only very limited. And we're not going to do nation building on the ground. Mm-hmm. The U.S. did not lose a single pilot during the military ouster of Gaddafi. Um, And yes, you had the Benghazi tragedy afterwards, but the fact that Libya fell apart, ask the French why they didn't want to do any nation building in Libya after they put so much effort in telling us to blow it up. And the Saudis, they didn't do it. They should take responsibility. And her pivot to Asia and, and, uh, and economic statecraft as a policy did reflect that. Now, interestingly, she's backed off of all of those things as candidate. It's not clear to me that the connections through the Clinton Foundation, you know, that Bill Clinton and the rest, that the entire Clinton machine would not have more impact on her as President Clinton than it did as Secretary of State Clinton. So I think it's I think it's pretty open question at this point as to what a President Clinton would really look like. But I think everything you described that Hillary did as Secretary of State is pretty much an extension of what Obama would want, Mr. I don't not believe in wars. I just don't believe in stupid wars, Mr. Let's turn the aircraft carrier two degrees. You know, I think he wanted to have a moneyball foreign policy. And I think she was she implemented that. I don't think it's not as if everything Obama has done has been a failure on foreign policy. We talked about TPP. You could talk about Cuba. But there's really been a lack of foreign policy strategy. And what concerns me the most is when I go around the world and talk to our allies and talk to the heads of state and the foreign ministers, and I've talked to just about every foreign minister of every major ally the U.S. has, they will say, we don't know what you stand for. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking here about like Canada. I'm not just talking about Singapore or Japan. I mean, countries that really should know what we stand for because they're right there in Ottawa, yeah. right? And they not really huge, don't. Not a huge cultural gap. Not a us. huge. Yes, I mean, they even yes. speak our language most yes. of the time, eh? Yes, with so, extra news, right? Yeah, exactly. When you talk to emissaries throughout the world, leaders, foreign ministers, do they criticize the Obama foreign policy in the way that Republican candidates do as weak? I mean, that is the main word. Or is it more 
are all over the place and incoherent. Oh, my God, they don't criticize it as weak. I mean, you know, I, I, they, they will say that the Americans are incredibly interventionist. Look at all the drone strikes. Look at the way we use our banking system and the dollar. We impose a $9 billion unilateral fine against Banque Paribas in France because they don't support U.S. sanctions, and they have to come crawling back and say, okay, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you. I mean, they, they absolutely see the Americans as unilateral, but what they don't know is what we want to do with it. Yeah. They don't know what we stand for. They don't know don't what the know strategy is. We know they don't know if we support <laughs> yeah. them long term. And right. so I do think the absence of strategy, which was not such a problem after we won the Cold War. You know, we're like, okay, we won. And so what are we going to do? Ah, we don't pay attention to it for a while. But, you know, the world has evolved since then. And China's become much more powerful. And Russia's become much more reactive and intransigent. And Europe, our, our key allies have become much weaker. This is not a time when you want to have an, incohe an incoherent policy. And, you know, after 9-11, we overreacted massively. But it didn't matter that much because the Russians were friendly towards us post 9-11. The Chinese were fairly small and the Europeans were strong and committed. God forbid the next president comes along. We still don't have a foreign policy strategy. We go along for another five, 10 years. China is now the world's largest economy. Another 9-11 comes along. And it doesn't have to be a terrorist act. It can be a massive cyber attack. It could be, you know, the next SARS whatever it is, and we overreact radically. But at that point, China's the largest economy, and Russia's not in any way well disposed. They're looking to take advantage, and the Europeans are completely incoherent and hedging all over the place. That, that could actually hurt us for a very long time, and I really don't want to see us in that position. Ian Bremmer's new book is Superpower, Three Choices for America's Role in the World. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. So international diplomacy is complex, and it's made the more complex by the fact that you got to get all these people into a room. I mean, remember the reporting on the Iran negotiations? They talked about Kerry and all the foreign ministers being locked in a conference room. Okay, couple things. They weren't locked. The diplomats don't like that, right? They weren't locked. The doors were open. The conference room was like a 16-star hotel in Switzerland. Not that bad. But if you don't have access to the 16-star hotel, and even if you do, it's still onerous to get there, you might want to try Citrix GoToMeeting. It's the smarter way to meet. Citrix GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team or, you know, your opponents trying to talk out centrifuge strategies. With GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone without travel expenses, without the hassle of traffic, without trying to awkwardly nudge the centrifuge behind you so as to pretend it doesn't exist. Your team can join by clicking a link. No signups, no speed bumps, no ayatollahs putting the kibosh on it. Turn on your webcam with HD quality. It's like being in the room. You can share screens to present, to review, and to get feedback because with GoToMeeting, everyone sees what you're seeing so your team can get on the same page and get going. To try GoToMeeting today, free for 30 days with nothing to lose, just go to GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. You do it now, your first meeting can be up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. And now the spiel, Jet.com, what could go wrong? The front page of the Wall Street Journal today, okay, let me back up. Newspapers were once on actual paper. That's why they're called newspapers. And guys like Mike Pesca got them delivered. And when we say front page, we actually meant it was right there up on the front of the page. So on today's front page of the Wall Street Journal, it's actual front page. There was an article about Jet.com. Now, the reason I had to lay out what the front page is, you might be coming to this as a Jet.com devotee or enthusiast, in which case you might not realize that newspapers were actual things. But if you do realize, in fact, if you subscribe to a 
newspaper, you might not understand that Jet.com is an actual thing, or you might not understand why it's an actual thing. There is a very small sliver of people who are aware of both newspapers and Jet.com being actual things. Most of the world is unaware of either, but the slim sliver who are aware of both. So let me tell you what Jet.com is. Jet.com is like Amazon plus Costco plus the Swiffer wet jet. It's like Amazon because it's all about online ordering. It's a store. It's about Costco because the kind of store it is is membership only, which lowers the price. So it's like being a member of Costco if Costco were to ship things to you. And it's like Swiffer wet jet because it's purple, almost the same exact purple the logo is as the Swiffer. Plus, I like saying Swiffer wet jet. Plus, if you want to buy something like, say, a Swiffer wet jet, it'll sell you that Swiffer wet jet but most likely at an enormous loss to itself. They do not care. They will take the loss. They want to get a lot of customers. Doesn't matter if they make money on the customers, at least at first, they say. Listen to this. When a Jet customer buys items that aren't in its inventory or available from partner merchants, a Jet employee buys the item from another website and then has them shipped directly to the customer. This is like, let's say there was a restaurant in your neighborhood called Neighborhood. And the cuisine of this restaurant was everything that's available to be ordered at all the restaurants around town. So you go in, you say, you have everything? Yeah. You have the IHOP uh, Rudy 2D Fresh and Fruity? We got that. You got the uh, Pizza Hut stuffed crust pizza? Yeah, sure, we got that. All right. Let me just have a, you know what? Let me just have a McRib. All right, I'll get you a McRib. The waiter goes out the back door, goes to McDonald's, buys a McRib, and then sells it to you for less than McDonald's charged him. How does that work? It doesn't matter. Jet.com is purple and ends in .com. Quote, we feel the monetizing of a frictionless purplish experience is vital to growing stickiness, resulting in monetizable loyalty a spokesman for Jet.com probably would say. I don't know. I just made the quote up, but that's what they're thinking. Here's another thing the journal said. More than just about any other current startup, Jet.com seems reminiscent of the dot-com boom era when e-commerce companies assumed giant losses before breaking into the black. And then they have a chart. I have this chart in my hands. Andrea, do you have this chart in your hands? Yes, Mike. Okay. So here's, remember, they said... The dot-com boom, they didn't know to bust, and then they talked about assuming losses before breaking into the black. Let's list all the companies on this chart called Super Startups, equity raised by e-commerce startups in their first year in millions. They do not say what happened to these. I will go through the chart, and I will tell you what happened to all these startups. The first is Jet.com, which in 2014 has raised $195 million. Next, Andrea. Pets.com. From Wikipedia, Pets.com was a dot-com enterprise that sold pet supplies to retail customers. It began operations in August 98 and closed in November 2000. But first, it gave the world this sock puppet. Here now, the Pets.com sock puppet. Pets.com, because pets can't drive. All right. The sock puppet lived on. Pets.com died. Next on the list, Andrea. Ourhouse.com. Struggling internet retailer Our House Inc. has halted sales operation after less than two years in business. Next. Eziba.com. April 2005, when Eziba, an online retailer, declared bankruptcy last year. Next. Drugstore.com. Have you ever been there? You ever go there? No. It exists. Really? I go there. 
PetSmart.com. Exists, but not as a .com. It's just a regular store. Also, they re-emphasize the smart over the mart. Don't know if that makes a difference. Miadora.com. September 2000, online jewelry seller Miadora Inc. closed Friday after failing to raise enough money to continue operations. Wineshopper.com. So in 2000, Wineshopper.com merged with VirtualVineyards.com and were bought by eVineyard prior to their bankruptcy. eVineyard, by the way, is a terrible name for a business. You could read it as Evan E. Yard, and that business today would certainly be known as Graper, G-R-A-P-R. Living.com. Retailer Living.com to shut down, lay off staff, liquidate assets, August 2000. Petopia.com. October 2000, Petopia.com laid off 60% of its workforce, or 120 people. According to SEC filings, the e-tailer had $8 million in sales against $48 million in losses. It eventually was bought by Petco. So, what have we learned from this, Andrea? The only website worth still visiting is Drugstore.com. Drugstore exists in the Wall Street Journal in documenting the boom and pre-making a profit probably should have disclosed that most of these went belly up. So good luck, Jet.com. Perhaps you'll get a lot of traffic, a lot of people looking to buy a used 747 or a slightly used Joe Namath or a DeBrickishaw Ferguson. Me, I'll be there at 6 a.m. tomorrow. I'll be looking to buy that Swiffer wet jet. Maybe some wine, maybe some jewelry, maybe some pet supplies. Confident in the knowledge that each money-losing transaction for you will also bring you closer to the goal of proving that profits are for suckers. And if worse comes to worse, you could always spin off a sock puppet and claim victory. And that's it for today's show. For the credits today, I will list the show's staff and pair them with weapons in ascending order of crudeness. Here goes. Producer Andrea Salenzi, cudgel sling. Managing producer Joel Meyer, scimitar longbow. Executive producer Andy Bowers, cannon gatling gun. So why have I partaken in this exercise? One reason, one reason only. To introduce the new song by They Might Be Giants. It's a dial-a-song debut, as we do every Monday. They Might Be Giants. They're here with Rock Club. One, two, check, one, two. One, two, check, one, two. One, two, check, one, two. Check. We love all the people And we love to rock the house No one knows we're coming So no one's coming